So let me ask a simple question as we start today, move forward. Um, how many friends do you have? How many friends do you have? Now, I'm not talking about Facebook friends and Instagram friends and MySpace friends. Anybody still have a MySpace? No? Oh, we got one MySpace back there. Um, <laughs> I thought it would be you. Uh, and uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm sure you all have like thousands of friends because you're all popular and, and wonderful on Facebook. But I'm talking about the real kind of friends, the friends that have real flesh and blood, the friend, friends that are, are, are here that, that kind of know you, like know you. And, and somehow love you anyway, you know, those kind of friends. Now, I, I, I bet that you could count on your hand maybe those friends, those kind of friends that, that really, really are in your life in a way that they've seen the worst of you and still are walking beside you. But I, I realize at the same time, statistically speaking, there's a lot of us that we don't have those friendships. We don't have anyone that knows us well. We don't have someone we consider close to us. And if that's you today, you're not alone. I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that restoration can be a place that you actually find friends. But the statistics we see these days just are staggering in terms of friendship, in terms of relationships. Listen to this. Uh, for instance, in one, one uh, recent uh, survey, they found that the average American only has one close friend, one close friend. It also found that 43% of Americans feel lonely or socially isolated, while 54%, the majority, say they don't feel anyone in their life knows them well. And who do you think is the loneliest among us? Out of all the generations, who do you think is the most lonely? Now, I bet in your mind, maybe you're thinking, probably like the seniors because they're they're in nursing homes or whatnot. No, actually, the loneliest generation among us now are millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z. Anyone born after 1983 are now the loneliest people among us, easily, which is super ironic because we are the generation that is more connected than ever. We have more Facebook friends and MySpace friends and Instagram followers and Twitter followers than ever before. We have these online connections, but yet somehow the generation that has the most online relationships has the most in real life loneliness and isolation. They are the ones who are struggling to have friends. I don't know that I ever was taught how to have a friendship, a real friendship. I remember the church talking a lot about marriage, like a lot about marriage. I remember a lot of sermons about marriage. And I remember, you know, especially more recently, I remember a lot of sermons about community. I don't remember anything on friendship, on just relationships. And so there's a lot of folks here, if you're not married or if you're not in community, it feels like sometimes you can't have a legitimate relationship in a spiritual community if you're not in one of those. And that makes you feel even more isolated, which is tragic. 
And the result of that is that most of us, especially in my generation and below, we're ill-equipped to actually build lasting relationships. And once the novelty wears off, once that kind of affinity, like we know we like the same things, once that begins to wear off, we just kind of shed those folks and we move on to the newest set of acquaintances in our life that kind of gives us what we need in that moment. But I don't know about you, that's not the way I want to live. I don't want to have a series throughout my life of very shallow acquaintances that every few years I just shed for the new ones that I'm going to end up shedding and then shedding and then shedding until I am continuously without friends. And that's why we're doing this series called Friended is because we recognize that our culture and I, I believe our church desperately needs to learn how to live within healthy relationships, to learn how to have real life friendships. It sounds crazy and maybe it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I think one of the most important things for our young 15-month-old church that we can get right now is how to be good friends. Just how to be good friends. We push community a ton here. We want people to get in what we call city groups, which is our experience of community. But no matter what crowd you get in, whether it's a a home group that's a city group or whether you walk in a room like this, it doesn't matter how close in proximity you get with someone. If you don't know how to have a healthy relationship with them, then you're going to move on to the next thing. It's going to get boring after a while. You're just going to kind of lose interest. And so for the next four weeks, we're tackling for the biggest roadblocks that we have in, in, in really dealing with authentic relationships, whether that be friendships or whatever. It's going to be applicable to whether you're married, you're single, wherever you are in your journey right now. I think this is, has the power to, to be a real breakthrough for all of us if we really grab hold of what God's saying in his word here. So uh, before we, we, we move into kind of some specifics about relationships, we need to start with the very thing that really kills relationships before they get started. I'm talking about comparison. Anybody know what comparison is? I bet when you walked in this room today, whether you realized in your mind or not, and you started looking around at different people, that comparison machine started. You started to look to people. Think about what your internal monologue is when you walk into a room. Like when you get invited to a party that you don't know a lot of people. Like what's it like inside your head? What's the little sentences that you're saying? It's probably like, you know, like sizing everybody up. Like, oh, look at the way they dress. Like if they dress better than you, it's like, well, look at at her. Or if they're like looking, you know, know, all ragged, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm... I'm doing pretty well here. Or you maybe hear about their job and maybe they have a cooler job than you do and you're just, uh, uh, they have a cooler job. And it goes on and on, whether, whatever that may be about that person. So you kind of genuinely walk around this room always internally processing where you are in comparison with that other person. And that is, I don't know if you knew this or not, that is exhausting. Have you ever felt like, wow, when I leave a group of people, I'm really tired. You ever feel that way? I feel that way. And I used to think, maybe that's just because I'm introverted. And now I think, maybe that's not because I'm introverted. Maybe that's because I am so busy comparing myself with people that by the time I leave, I am emotionally dead from figuring out where I measure up with these people. It's so tedious. It's so internal and it's exhausting. And I guarantee you that whether you realize it or not, even when you walked in this room this morning, you were probably in some form or fashion doing it. 
It becomes so natural to us to learn how to compare ourselves to others. There's a story in the scriptures that gives us an amazing picture of this with Jesus and Peter. This is in the story. It's in John 21, and Jesus has just been resurrected. But Peter, he's gone back to his old life. He's back fishing again. Even though Jesus is resurrected, he, he's, he's probably dealing with guilt from the reality that he just denied Jesus three times a week ago. And so he's back at his old job, he's back at his old ways, and Jesus, like he always does, meets Peter right where he was. He meets him on the shore, and right in his shame, right in his, 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 his fear of the consequences, he meets him and brings restoration. Look with me here in John 21, starting in verse 15. It says... When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you to where you do not want to go. Jesus is speaking here. He said this to indicate the the kind of death Peter would glorify God with. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. Now, I wish there was more time to unpack this because there's a lot of layers here. There's a lot of just multiple storylines happening here. But, but Jesus is digging into Peter's identity in a really, really profound way. You see, do you know where Jesus met Peter? On the Sea of Galilee while he was fishing. And he gives them this invitation, follow me. And after his resurrection, Peter's right back where he started. That problems, those issues he was dealing with in his life has brought him back to the beginning of where he was, thinking probably he was disqualified, but yet Jesus meets him there, and right where they met the last time, he gives him the exact same invitation. It did not disqualify him that he denied Jesus. Jesus came with grace and gave him the exact same same words right in his struggle he said Peter follow me it's amazing the grace of Jesus that meets us where we are that meets us when we think we can't go any further when we think we are disqualified Jesus says no by my grace you are not disqualified I qualify you I send you I give you the same invitation follow me whether you've been a christian here today for 30 minutes or 30 years jesus is still giving you the very same invitation follow me take the next step and take the next step and take the next step just keep following me but as we'll see as we continue reading peter's a little bit distracted at this point as he's hearing these profound words we keep reading here it says so peter turned and he's around and he saw the disciple that Jesus loved following them. Real quick side note, that's John. John is writing this gospel and that's his way of identifying himself. He calls himself in the gospel the one that that Jesus loved. So he was following them, kind of trailing them. And the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, 
He said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Listen to Jesus' response. He says, if, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answers, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So Peter is missing what Jesus is saying because he starts hearing this person come up behind him and starts recognizing, well, this is one of Jesus' good boys too. I wonder, I know what I'm going to experience in my future. I wonder what's going to happen to this guy. So what could be a beautiful moment for Peter is completely missed because his mind is not on Jesus. His eyes are on Jesus. His mind and his eyes are on this person, other person that's, that he's expecting that, that Jesus is going to do something maybe better for. And what does Jesus say? What is that to you? What is that to you? As for you, follow me. How many of us are missing what God is actually wanting to do in speaking into us because all of our time and our attention and our focus is in what God is doing in other people in comparison to us? What if he, we are missing entirely the voice of God because we are listening to the voice of others in comparison to what he's doing in us? Psychologists call this social comparison theory. I had to consult our resident social psychologist this week to, to give me some insight on this because I have an expert sitting on the front row, which is exciting. And social comparison theory, what it says is that there's two types of comparisons. There's upward comparison and there's downward comparison. I'm sure I'm simplifying this a little bit, but upward comparison is comparing a person and says, you know what, those people are, are better than me. They're in a better place than I am. And a downward comparison, obviously, is I look at these people and I think, oh, well, I'm better than those people. And both of these instances of comparison can be so deeply destructive. Not only the, I'm better than these people, which is obviously destructive, but also they're better than me. It creates two things. If, I, if I'm better than you, that, that fills me with pride. It gives pride to my heart. I start thinking that I am something that I'm not, but yet if I look at someone and think, you know what? They're better than me. It fills me. I'm fills me with despair. If I think I'm worse than you, I feel despair. And really, in, in reality, they're two sides of the same coin. They're both a self-focus, pride and despair, as we focus our attention away from God and start to put it on other people when we look at them. This is the easiest to recognize, obviously, on social media. Uh, that is literally, Facebook is a comparison machine, is it not? For those of you who are on Facebook or Instagram, it literally is a comparison machine. These, these, these recent studies have found that social media and depression are deeply linked. And what they found is that not because of the actual usage, it's because comparison begins to happen within us and cause that depression. This, uh, this uh, PhD who was studying this, she said, what these studies reveal is that the underlying mechanism is social comparison, and that's why the more time we spend on Facebook, or I'd add Instagram, or Twitter, or that might be, the more likely we are to feel depressed. Wow. You ever felt that? Speaking of moms today, boy, moms, you know about comparison, don't you? You know about, oh, am I using the right diaper? Or am I... Am I using the right organic food? Or then you look at the post and you see these girls on Instagram with their kids and it's like, how do you get that looking? How do you wake up with curls in your hair and your children are dressed better than me? And, and like, how do you get this happening? 
And, and you begin this comparison machine of, man, how do you make your life look so perfect? And it brings depression. It's not just with, with moms. It's not just with women. Guys, like, like I, I see guys going on these cool vacations where they're out standing on cliffs and they're like, yeah, look at this. And I'm like, I can't afford to go to those places. That's really depressing. I'm so glad you're in the edge of the world on the most beautiful mountaintop of all time, but I don't have that kind of money because I have kids and you don't. And that fills me with despair. Not because I have kids. I mean, there's, a, there's days, of course. But because I look at someone else's life and I think, man, I, I wish I could have that. And that's not just in online. That's real relationships. Comparison is making friendship impossible because we can't get close to someone because we're always measuring ourselves against them. What we need to realize as we talk about friendships and relationships in this series is it doesn't start with the other people. It starts in us. It starts in our own hearts, in our own lives. It starts just like Peter when we recognize that we're missing what God's trying to do in us because our eyes are on everybody else. are measuring ourselves against everybody else. That's the real danger of comparison. Comparison is asking others to answer questions in us that only God can answer. Let me say that again. Comparison is asking others, other people around us, to, to answer questions in us that only God himself can answer. These are questions about identity, questions about who we really are. I don't know who you are today, where you are in the religious journey. Maybe you got dragged here by your family because it's Mother's Day. I don't care if you're religious or not. Every human being is asking questions of identity. And there's really two primary questions I would identify in this. The number, number one question is first, who am I? Who am I? Every person, religious or not, is asking the question, who am I? And in light of that, the second question, how do I measure my worth? How do I know I'm worth anything in this life? Whether you're religious or not, you're asking in some form or fashion those questions because those are the deepest human questions that all of us are asking. And as Christians, we, we know and believe that as image bearers, that only God can answer those questions in our lives. Only he can give the true and final and lasting image to us that answers those questions from here on out. And that's what sin did, and we see in the garden in Genesis 3, is we chose to choose our identity, to form our own identity and sense of worth apart from the one whose image we bear. And when we did that, something tragic happened. The one whose image we bore, the one who the very first time we opened our eyes and breathed our first breath, we saw who we were bearing his image. And all of a sudden after sin, that, that scene is distorted. And now we're, we're, we're still looking. We're looking in broken mirrors everywhere. We're looking to every person. We're looking to our job. We're looking to our, our family. We're looking to our kids, our hobbies. We're looking anywhere and everywhere just to see who we are and answer those questions. And that's where comparison comes in. Because if I don't know who I am, I'm looking everywhere. I'm in an all-out pursuit to look at someone else just to get the chance to figure out who the heck I am. I think this is a big part of why we live in such a demonizing society 
where people like to find the other side of the aisle or the other side of the issue and yell at them constantly and dehumanize them is because I don't really know who I am. And the only way I really know who I am is because I know who I hate. And if I know who I hate, then I definitely know who I am because I'm just not them. And that's the strongest sense of identity a lot of people have is I don't know who I am, but I know who they are. And I hate them. And I'm not them. And that drives so much of our culture these days. This lack of identity is bearing hate inside and outside everywhere we go. Like I said earlier, if I'm honest, I, I've dealt with comparison. I've dealt with comparison not only in ministry, but in, as I walk in rooms, I, I, I feel this sense of either pride or despair. And, and I begin to think, man, I, I don't really know who I am. I need to answer those questions within me. I feel that exhaustion. I, I feel that sense of blaming everything on my introversion when in reality... I know my exhaustion, I know the experiences I'm having right now are because internally I'm doing the gymnastics to figure out how I am in comparison to, to you and you and you and you and you and you. And I'm so tired from that. And I bet you're so tired from that. All that pride and all that despair can give you a feeling of, of identity for just a moment. But the sad reality is, is that when we are filled with either pride or we are filled with despair, it crowds out love. We cannot enter into any authentic relationship without love. The truth is, is that I can't love my neighbor. I can't love you as a friend. I can't love anyone, my wife, my girlfriend, my, my, my boyfriend, my, my, my co-worker, whoever that may be, I can't love them while I'm simultaneously comparing myself to them. I can't love you and compare myself to you at the same time. Something has to happen in me to where I settle that question in order for me to love you, in order for you to love me. The reason we lack real authentic relationships in this culture, in this church, wherever that may be, is because we have yet to kill and uproot these heart habits of comparison that are killing our relationships, that are stopping them before they even start. And the only thing that uproots comparison is identity. The only thing that starts to kill out that habit of comparing yourself to everyone around you is when you firmly and finally Know who you are. Those two big questions, who am I and how do I measure my worth, the good news that we have today is that Jesus fully and finally answers those questions for us today. Today. You don't have to walk away from here knowing what those answers are. The Bible tells us we are image bearers. Every single one of us, we are, we are endowed with dignity, worth, and value. And in spite of our sin, in spite of choosing to try to form our own identity for ourselves, God pursued us. And in Jesus's life, in Jesus's death, in Jesus's resurrection, it says that he makes us sons and daughters of God. Now we belong. We are his children. That is 
the truest thing about us, more than our identity, more than our mistakes that the world has put upon us, the very truest thing about you today. In Christ, you are a son. In Christ, you are a daughter of God. Brennan Manning says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. This is who we are. We are loved. We are sons. We are daughters. And that second question, how do we know our worth? How do we know that we're worth anything at all? We answer that question simply by looking at the cross. By looking at the fact that Jesus saw us at our worst and said, I will not only go and seek them out, I will lay down my life for them. You are worthy because Jesus has chosen to lay down his life for you. God saw you so valuable that his death was worth your redemption. That's how valuable you are to him. That, friends, if you receive that today, that is settled. And when we walk in these rooms from now on, as we continue the process of remembering our identity in Jesus, the comparison machine can shut down because I don't have to look to you to know who I am. I know who I am in Jesus. And because I know who I am in Jesus, I am free to love you. I am free to love you for who you are. I'm free to serve you right where you are. I don't need you to tell me who I am because I know who I am. And I know how much I'm worth. And because that love has been received in me, I now have that love to give to you. Today I want to invite you, if you've never received that identity in Jesus, maybe you've taken upon some sort of belief a long time ago, but you've never really felt like, that's settled, I know who I am. If you don't know that, I want to invite you into that today, to come to God's table and just say, I'm not just taking the bread and the wine, I'm taking up who I always was meant to be. In Jesus Christ. I'm taking up my identity. I'm laying down my pride. I'm laying down my despair. And most importantly, I'm laying down the exhaustion of trying to look at other people and other things to know who I am. Today I can have a true and lasting identity in Jesus. So Father, we thank you that you saw us in our despair and you saw us in our pride you saw us not when we were running towards you but when we were running as fast as we could away from you and in that reality you came and Jesus because you knew who you were you walked around and you gave people real agape love self-sacrificing real love. Jesus, you had authentic relationships and authentic friendships. You were a great friend. You are a great friend simply because you weren't looking to the world around you. You weren't looking to creation to find who you are because your Father had spoken that over you and you were certain. He said to you, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased and he said to that to you, Jesus, before you did anything in ministry. 
And so today, Holy Spirit, I pray in your power that you speak over every son and over every daughter here today those words. That we would hear, you are my son. You are my daughter. With whom I am well pleased. I'm proud of you. I love you. You don't have to impress me. I loved you in your worst, and I'm going to love you every step of the way towards your restoration. Help us to receive that today, Jesus. I pray against the enemy. I pray against his lies in our mind. I pray against the identities he has spoken over us that are false identities. Would you break those today by the power of your Holy Spirit and give us our true and lasting identity in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to take communion today, celebrate his sacrifice for us. If you don't know how we do this, we take a piece of the bread and we dip it into the juice. It's for us. It's a remembrance every week, as Jesus told us to, uh, to remember his body broken for us, his blood shed for our sins. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, we encourage you. You don't have to be a member of here or anything like that. If you're just visiting, come. Come and receive communion. But more importantly, if you're here today, you've never received that identity. Come and don't just take communion. Take Jesus. Take Jesus today. Myself and some other folks will be getting back. We would love to pray with you about anything. If you just are struggling with comparison, struggling with identity right now, struggling with those issues or anything else, we want to pray with you. So why don't we stand and let's take communion together.